The Coach's Roundtable is brought to you by Between the Lines. Between the Lines offers online training with current minor league affiliates from the comfort of your own home through online technology. With their coaching, watch your skills and money increase due to no longer needing to drive to get training. For more information, go to betweenthelines.pro. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode on the Coach's Roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Joel Credo, and today I've got a coach way down south in the state of Georgia, but enough for me. Let's get to know Coach. Coach, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got to where you are now. Joel, first and foremost, thanks for having me on. Um, my name is John Wellborn. I'm the head baseball coach at Glen Academy in southeast Georgia, and uh, I'm going on my third year here as the head coach. And the, the past two seasons, we've uh, tied the school record for wins and back-to-back seasons with 24. Um, prior to me being the head coach here, I was an assistant here for two years under Coach Trent Mongero, who's a future Hall of Famer. Um, prior to that, I was an assistant at Locust Grove High School in Metro Atlanta uh, under Stephen Phillips. And uh, shout out to Coach Phillips. But uh, one of the great things about uh, Coach Phillips was he was also the AD at the time. And uh, what propelled me and got me going in the right direction to be a head coach was him being an AD, it allowed uh, me to take some some stuff off of his plate, and he got to the point where he trusted me to start doing some of the day-to-day stuff um, from scheduling and practice plans and stuff like that. So that was a great opportunity for me. Um, prior to being at Locust Grove, I was a, a player at Georgia College in Milledgeville, uh, D2 in the, in the Peach Belt. And uh, once I finished playing, I stayed on as a grad assistant and uh, – you know, help coach the outfielders, and then also was a grad assistant for the weight room. So I was able to get in there and, and you know, coach up several different teams and, and learn some stuff along the way. So I usually just like to start off the podcast with some stories, kind of get to know you stuff, um, just to create a, a situation for the listener where they can connect uh, with the guests on the show. So do you have any particular stories, whether it be an ejection story, you know, maybe you've just seen a crazy performance, maybe you guys played against – uh, a former person in high school that's now in the MLB that everyone can be like, oh, yeah, I see that guy every day playing professional baseball. Do you have any go-to stories you can share? Uh, so one story is, is about a game. as My first year as a head coach, and uh, we were playing a, a very good team in, here in South Georgia, uh, Benedictine, and um, we were actually one run away from being run-ruled, and uh, they attempted to bunt to uh, go ahead and end the game. And it, we, we ended up getting them out, and uh, we came back to the dugout, and our guys were kind of, you know, upset about it a little bit. And we ended up going on and scoring two touchdowns and then uh, a little more after that to come back and win the game. But uh, it, was, it was, you know, very crazy experience because you're right there on the brink of the game being over. But like we always preach, you know, you're never out of the fight, and uh, you, you always have a chance to win the game. So let's go into the the weight room aspect of coaching. I I do some weight stuff with my guys. I teach weights throughout the day. But I feel like there's so much more to weights um, that's just been changing from when I was in high school to when I was in college to even now. The science behind it research um, has just absolutely blown up and has just become more and more and more as we've just been chasing the knowledge of how to be effective and efficient when it comes to lifting weights, when it comes to, you know, making our athletes better athletes. Can you kind of tell us, though, to start off with just the importance of 
the weight room? Yeah, so first and foremost, you know, our job as coaches or strength coaches or people who are running the weight room is injury prevention. Our job is to keep the best players on the field. And, uh, you know, that, that's number one. And then, you know, we need to focus on creating efficient movement patterns, mobility. You see it all the time, and I'm sure you see it in the, in the weight room, that a lot of these kids just don't know how to move. And maybe it's because, you know, they don't go out and play as much as we used to go play and run around and they're stuck inside. But we got to make sure that those movement patterns are good. We want to create bigger, faster, stronger, and more powerful athletes, or in our case, baseball players. Um, to, to me, the weight room, you know, really creates a, a set of confidence for these kids. And, and you can see it, you know, when they they start to see them pushing some heavier weight or, you know, they're filling out or they're, they're getting kind of jacked and they start walking around with some swagger and some moxie. And, you know, that plays – a big role in to how successful they can be from a, men, uh, a mental standpoint. And then just the importance of it when you get off the bus, you know, we're all dudes. So, you know, you're always, whether you believe it or not, you're sizing people up. And when the, the team gets off the bus, you're, you're looking and, um, you know, your body is your billboard. So um, just the importance of putting in the work and, and creating this visual that, you know, you're serious about it. You know, we, we've we been hitting the weight room since I do weights. The majority of my baseball kids are in the weights class. We've been just getting after it as I have a different workout for them as I do for the rest of the students. Um, and we've just been getting after it. And as I like to tell them or joke with them that, hey, for at least the first 15 minutes when we get off the bus, the other team's going to be intimidated. But then when we start to walk, play catch, they may, you know, may think otherwise, but when we get off the bus by Gala, we're going to intimidate some other teams just by the fear factor of our size. Um, but I am curious, is there anything unique you guys do in the weight room that a coach listening um, could take away and, and implement in their own program? Yeah, so uh, fortunately for me, you know, I have pretty much all of my players for 90 minutes, both in the fall and spring. Uh, my administration and our registrar does a great job of getting me all the kids that I need. Um, before I get into kind of the flow of the weight room and our daily basis, one of the things that I did, I have found beneficial um, during that time is on the days that we, we might not lift, we, we might sprint, but um, you know, this is kind of going off the, the, the marker a little bit, but we utilize uh, some classroom time and we do chalk talk, and then we'll do a walkthrough, and then we'll do it live. So, for instance, maybe we're doing bunt Ds or um, cuts and relays, just knowing where to be. Like every player in my program has a book, and I've outlined every single possible play that can happen in a game, and they have it mapped out um, on a sheet of paper. And I don't want them just to know where they need to be. I want them to know where everybody needs to be so – they can hold each other accountable, and they can just understand how the whole thing fits in, um, you know, to the to the puzzle. But with that being said, you know, especially I've seen it with coaches who have been coaching for a very long time. They forget at times that that we're coaching kids, and that they're not necessarily on the same wavelength as us in terms of the game. And you know, we're thinking about stuff, and we're getting ready for practice, and our minds just churn and churn and churn, and because we've done it for so long that 
sometimes we get going too fast. And so I found that using that time to do the chalk talk, draw it up, and then literally go outside and walk through it and then go full speed. It's helped out. But um, back to the, to the weight room. So one thing that I've changed up this year is we always have our daily warm up. And in the past, you know, I always felt like we needed to have a set warm up so that we can master it and that, um, you know, they could show up and, and do it. And kind of what I found over time was they were showing up and they mastered it and they were doing it. But the level of focus was a little bit down because, you know, you're doing the same thing over and over and it becomes monotonous. And, you know, sometimes they, they begin to dread just doing the stretch. So this year I created five different stretches. So five different warm up routines for each day of the week that we're here. And, um, you know, I, I realized that, you know, I want them to be able to master it by the spring. So we, we have this entire fall and, uh, kind of what I've, I've realized is that, you know, now their, their level of focus is increased because it's not the same thing every day. And, you know, it's not monotonous to them. And, uh, so we'll go through some type of active warm up, and, uh, you know, some coaches, really harp on their kids being silent and, and focused when they're stretching. And for me, you know, what I realized was that while I'm taking attendance, I can gauge kind of where these kids are by whether they're, they're chatty or not. Are they talking? You know, if they're talking, I've, I've seen that they're, they're going to bring energy that day. They have some energy. They have some juice. It's going to be a good day. And when they show up and they're not talking and, uh, you know, it's kind of just a blah mood that something's off. Maybe they didn't sleep like they should. Maybe they didn't eat uh, enough. But I know that whatever I do that day, I need to scale it back. So it's a good time for me to kind of reflect and, and see where they are. Um, with that warm-up piece, a couple of days a week, we'll also go to the wrestling room and we'll we'll do tumbling or animal movements. Just, you know, it, it's crazy to see where some of these kids are on just a, a front roll, you know, and then over the years, how they can progress and start to actually move their bodies. So that that's the warm up piece. And then I, I really believe that you have to, to lift three to five times a week out of season. So, you know, five is on a high end. I've never done five personally, but I've seen some coaches do it and it's worked. Uh, usually in the past, I've done four days and I've done a two day split between upper and lower body. But um, this year I'm changing it up and I've been going three days. So I'll do an upper day, upper body focus day, a lower and then a total. And uh, I, I like to pull up my calendar and I'll map up, map out the entire semester, you know, based on when we have breaks and um, when, when we'll be in school. And so when I map it out, I like to break it down into different phases. So to start off for like the first two weeks, you know, we'll do like a, a neural introductory or strength phase uh, just to kind of get the body ready for the demand and, you know, allow the brain, uh, the brain's ability to, you know, recruit muscles and to, to be able to contract and uh, produce a particular movement that we want. And then I like to roll into a hypertrophy phase which is essentially just trying to increase the cross-sectional area of the muscle. We want to make it bigger. And uh, in, in the past, you know, I, after 
doing some some research and talking to some other guys. But in the past, what I would usually do, I would think that, you know, hypertrophy, I got to do three sets of eight or four sets of 12, three sets of 10. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll kind of do that and focus on time under tension. Uh, but what, what I realized, too, was that I could get maybe some more bang for my buck during that process and growing the muscle and making it stronger at the same time by maybe switching up my sets and reps. So like going eight sets of three or five sets of five. So it, it's, there's no like cookie cutter way to achieve that, but you can change it up to, to also get, you know, some more bang for your buck. So when we're in that phase, I'll do a little bit of both that way. Um, I'm hitting both aspects. Um, once we get done with the hypertrophy phase, we'll go to a strength phase. So, you know, we've made the muscle bigger. Now we got to make it stronger and we will work from 85% plus and we'll do anywhere from six or less reps. And then I usually will incorporate a strength power phase and then roll into a power phase. We made the muscle bigger, stronger. Now let's make it more explosive and we'll work anywhere from 75 to 90%. Um, one big thing that I like to do in uh, every phase is incorporate a, a PAP, so a post-activation potentiation, some type of um, explosive movement with my my strength set. So basically, it's just exposing a muscle to heavy loads prior to an explosive movement. And uh, when I set up my lift, so I'll give you an example is, you know, maybe we're going to do back squat with uh, some type of vertical jump and then I have a prehab. So every every time I, I set it up, I have my main lift, my explosive movement, and a prehab, something, you know, maybe it's a, a bench psoas stretch or rear foot elevated, something, a TKE, anything that's going to help me kind of, you know, limit any type of injuries. And then every day we get protein shakes. Whether they want them or not, they drink them. So I'm curious. I have this discussion with one of my buddies all the time, um, and I kind of like to just poke the bear and and uh, see what kind of response I get. So uh, you know, you talked about you know not lifting in the off season. You know, try not to go more than a certain amount of days. Um, so my question for you is, what would be wrong with going six days a week? And this is what would be my argument. Um, I look at guys that go through like boot camp. I look at guys that go to the military. And, you know, they're doing push-ups all the time, pull-ups all the time. And, I, you know, you see them when they come back, and they're definitely bigger. So my question is, what's wrong with going too many days a week in the weight room? I mean, it, it really depends on how much, how much time you have. Do you have time to recover? Are you eating enough? Are you sleeping enough? Um, and then what do you need whoever you're training to do? Like, you know, the, the boot camp guys – a, they're, you know, they're going through boot camp and they're trying to, you know, mentally test them, but also get them ready for some, some crazy stuff out there. So, you know, I look at it as what do I need my players to be able to do? And I need them to be able to hit the ball hard and far. I need them to run fast. I need them to get to the ball fast. And I need them to throw the ball hard. So... You know, I think that if I program it and have adequate rest in there for them, that they're going to be able to make those gains 
to be able to accomplish what I need them to accomplish. So, you know, you talked about speed in the weight room. What are some of the ways you guys train speed in the weight room? So, you know, to me, you have to sprint at least three to five times a week. And, uh, you know, we've improved our speed and maintained um, very well since I've been here. And kind of what I've broken it down into is acceleration days, which is anywhere from zero to 30 yards. And, you know, we'll, we'll have different starts. So like, you know, we might have a reactive component where it's on a whistle or, you know, there might be some competitive nature where you're racing against somebody or just different starts in general. Maybe we're getting our 60 start. Maybe we're laying down, um, just working on accelerating. And then we have max speed. So our, our top end days and, uh, for those, I usually do some, some zone training. So, uh, you know, if I do anywhere, when I say zones, I'll have like some cones set up and from cone to cone is a zone. So if I do anywhere from 15 to 20 yard splits, I'm focused more on some top end speed. Um, you know, you, you need to get really past the 30 yard mark. So, um, if I'm doing, uh, top end speed days, you know, I, I want to get past 30 yards, but if I'm doing the zone training and I want to focus on acceleration, I might do 10 yard splits. And then if I want to do top end anywhere from 15 to 20 yard splits. So an example would be like for one of the days, maybe I'll do a, a 50 yard buildup to a 30 yard sprint. That would be more of a, a top end speed day. And there's, there's some other ones I'll mix in. That's just one example. Uh, and then an acceleration one would be maybe I, I sprint for 10 yards, I coast for 10 yards, and then I sprint for another 10 yards. So my body has to get used to to turning it back on. Um, then some, some days we'll have some recovery runs. Uh, we call them tempo recovery runs. And that's the, the kid is operating at 65 to 75%. And our total volume for that would be, anywhere from 800 to 2000 yards. And, you know, we, we work at a two to one work to rest ratio. So example would be if I did a hundred yard tempo, I would walk back for 50 and then I would hit the hundred again. So to, and to me, the, the biggest thing that I see uh, with coaches when they're doing sprint work and, you know, I'm, I might use too much rest time, but I don't want the sprints to be conditioning. I need them fresh for each rep. You know, I don't necessarily need them to go, you know, run a, a bunch of miles or poles or to be exhausted. I need them to be explosive. You know, what's what's the most time that they probably need to run, you know, in a game? About 12 seconds if they were to hit inside part home run. So I need them to be ready for a baseball game and what I need them to do. So you guys train speed, but why do you think speed is such an important factor of the game? I mean, speed speed changes the game in so many ways. I mean, what I've noticed over time is that when we have speed, we get a lot more fastballs because, you know, pitchers don't want us running on them. Coaches don't want us running on them. So uh, our hitters get a lot more fastballs. It, it applies a lot more pressure. There's a lot more you know, high, high intensity, high, high stakes, uh, when we're on the bases and, uh, 
it, it allows you to sc- score more runs because you're you're getting around the bases faster. But it also defensively allows us to get to to balls quicker and allows them to score less runs. I mean, obviously there there goes more into um, you know especially the defensive side, there's more that goes into it than just getting to the ball quick, you know, obviously your routes and stuff like that, but um, the speed can definitely play into the game in, in a myriad of ways. So when we first got in contact, you were talking about how you have this system that if you execute it, you could win roughly about 98% of your games. What do you think that system entails how would you describe that system all right so when i was in college i had this assistant coach coach mitchum uh, he's out at arizona western now but he i would be in the cage at like midnight with one of my other teammates uh, jake Sandlin, and uh, we'd be hitting and this this coach would still be in his office and i swear he lived there and uh he he went through data like 10 years of data over a college season and he put together some numbers in a system and what he found out is if so on this this uh, chart that I have and I'll, I'll tell you what it is there's uh, four things on each side there's offensive side and defensive side so uh, he created this and then my me and my brother-in-law when we were at Locust Grove kind of scaled it back to a high school game because everything was focused on nine inning games so we scaled it back to focus on a seven-inning game. But essentially, uh, from the offensive standpoint, and the, the goal of this this chart is you want to get one or more on each side. So from the offensive standpoint, if you can score, the first one is five or more runs. If you can get the opposing pitcher to throw 110 pitches or more. If you can have seven takeaways, so a walk, um, stolen base, reach on an error, all of those things if you can take have seven of those and then if you can have a big inning so three or plus runs in an inning if you can get one of those on that side and then defensively if you can allow two or less runs if your pitcher can throw 92 or less pitches if you can not allow them to take have more than five takeaways so don't walk guys don't let them steal don't make errors and then if you can walk three or less people, if you can get one of those, so one and one, you'll win 98% of your games. And he had it broken down, and he showed us, you know, the the year that we won the conference championship in college, I think we were 24-1 and one when we had one or more on each side. And the one we lost was, like, just a crazy extra inning game. So, like, it, it threw some stuff, you know, out the window. So then – when we went back and we made it to the high school game, we went back and we plugged in all of our games and we had some some crazy ridiculous number two that was like above 97% that we won over 97% of the games if we could just accomplish one or more on each side. That's fascinating. It kind of reminds me of the stuff from One Pitch Warrior um, as I've worked with a guy who does something similar. So here's another question I I have for you, and you kind of brought this up before the podcast, but offensive philosophy and how you've improved your offense over the years. You know, one of the best compliments besides that you play the game the right way is that you're you're tough out at the plate. 
So ultimately, we just wanted to be tough outs at the plate. But um, I'll just kind of give you a rundown real quick of uh, the numbers prior to um, I was out of place and then where we got to. So when I was at Locust Grove the year before I started helping out, the team batted 293. And then the next year we moved to 320. The next year we moved to 322. The next year we moved to 338. And these are on teams that, you know, went Final Four, Elite Eight, State Championships. Like, So we weren't just playing nobodies. And then 2019, we went back to 335, but we were also playing with seven guys who were on the JV team the year before. Um, and then when I got to Glen Academy, the year before I got here, the team batted 222. And then the next year, my first year here, we went up at 298, but that was the COVID year. So that number could have went down over time, could have went up either way. Uh, 2021, we were at 292, 2022, 303, and then last year, 313. And so uh, early on, especially here, we literally told our players what they were going to hit. Because uh, early on, they were going up there and, you know, somebody would throw a first pitch curveball and they'd swing. And, you know, that they wouldn't do any damage to it or you know they might not even hit it at all and so what we decided we was like well, you are going to hit fastballs if a high school kid can go up there and he can throw you three curveballs back to back to back in a row strike you out we will tip our cap to him so we got to the point early on that we would just focus on a fastball until we had two strikes and then we go to our two-strike approach you know, then over time, you know, between the hours of putting in, you know, hitting some velocity on the machine and some, some plus breaking balls and just doing other drills, we've been able to progress into hitting other stuff. But um, we're, we're still, you know, focused on doing damage to fastballs. And, you know, we have some guys now who, if you want to hang something, that will bang it. But you know, starting off is we just focused on, can we do damage to the fastball? And, you know, I had this de debate with our uh, football coach, and he one time after practice, I coached football before um, I went baseball full-time, and he said something about how it's the hardest thing to do in any sport. And I, to I told him, I was like, no, I think the hardest thing in any sport is to hit a baseball because, you know, here's an analogy. I can take a kid who has never played football, or baseball, and let's just say he's a sophomore in high school. I can stick that sophomore in high school who's never played football out there on the field, and he will be more successful than if I put him in there to face someone throwing 90 miles per hour. It's just that's just the way it is. And uh, you know, for early on, both at Locust Grove and here, we would hit six days a week. Like as a player, I fell off if I went 48 hours without swinging. You know, 24 hours for me was kind of pushing it. But if I went two days, I felt, especially in season, I felt kind of out of whack. So, you know, we we went to basically hitting almost daily, um, six days a week. So if, if a coach were to go to your practice, what would be the things that they see that you guys are doing there? So a couple of things. And, you know, we try to really do some – some high level stuff and really challenge our guys so that 
you know, once we get to the actual game, that it's it's much easier than, you know, once we're in the practice setting. So a couple of things that I really like, and uh, we call it the two-headed monster. We'll have two two machines up, one with a high-velocity fastball, one with a very good breaker, and uh, two people are feeding, and the coach is behind behind the, the hitter, so he doesn't know what's coming, and he'll he'll point to which pitch, which which feeder he wants to feed, and you know early on it was it was a struggle for those guys, and and now they kind of crave having that uh, that drill in there because they they want to compete, and uh, that, that's a big thing. We'll always have, you know, multiple. We're lucky. Um, Adam Wainwright graduated from Glen Academy and um, has poured a lot into our community and a lot into our facilities. And so we have, you know, four cages indoors and we're getting two more uh, put outside. So we have a lot of room to hit. And uh, we'll have multiple machines going, uh, high velocity, velocity fastballs. We'll have some breaking balls. Uh, I really like to have one of my coaches, not just necessarily throwing BP, but sometimes he will, but have him in there actually mixing. So, you know, it's it's a little closer, so it's a, it's very tough, but we're throwing different things in there at him. One of my favorite is angle BP, and I found like when we were doing that pretty much daily uh, last season during the season, you know, we would have our our best game. So, you know, the the coaches basically if I'm a right-handed hitter, he's off to the left angled and throwing that ball, kind of cutting the plate in half. And it allowed us to stay inside the ball and through the ball. Because, you know, at the high school level, you'll see it all the time. Kids get very rotational in and out of the zone. And when our barrel can work through the middle of the field, you know, it doesn't really matter where the pitcher throws the ball. We're going to put a good swing on it. Um, Another one is disruptive front flip or BP. So, essentially if we're doing front flip we might flip a heater in there we might flip one in there that that floats for five seconds but you have to be able to control your body especially your lower body and uh put a good swing on the ball and you know early on in a a kid's career in high school level unless you have you know elite players they don't necessarily know how to control that lower body and that does a good uh a good job of of that we also do a lot of live BP, so we'll get three pitchers and three tunnels, and we'll go go to competing. And you know, the pitcher is giving it everything he has because he wants to, he wants to win, and then the hitter is in there getting after it too. Um, I like to do, especially in the fall, some overload underload principle. So we'll have a light bat, like a, like a t-ball bat, and then we'll have some hitting jackets. We'll put on our bat, so we'll go light bat, heavy bat then swing with our regular bat and uh, when I was at Locust Grove I did a study on it and we ended up increasing on average our, our players bat speed by three miles per hour which which is pretty significant uh, we always do lots of video you know these kids a lot of them in today's I mean even before now but especially now they have to be able to see it and before they can actually feel it so we, we do video and then we just focus on rounds where we just stay through the middle and, you know, maybe there'll be a consequence if you can't do it. Um, so those are just a few things that, that we do that you know, have been beneficial for us. So 
my so you talked about you know the weighted bats. You guys have some different gimmicks that um, you've gotten from donors. But what are some of your favorite gimmicks uh, tools that you guys like to use at practice? And is there any of them that you've used that you're like this isn't as great? So a coach that's listening cannot you know invest their money in it. What are your some of favorite gimmicks, and what are some of the ones that maybe coaches don't need to spend money on? Well, if if you can afford hack attacks, like obviously those are phenomenal. They can do so many things and, you know, they, they come with the normal legs and the higher legs. So like if you have the higher legs, you can create uh, a more realistic high school breaking ball with the lower legs. You know, you have some pretty serious break just because of, you know, the depth of the machine. Um, you know, I, I like the hitting jackets uh, because it allows you to, you know, make the bat a little heavier but it's not in the way. So like with the light bat, you know, that, that movement we're, we're doing it at a faster, more explosive rate. And then when we put the hidden jacket on, we're making it, you know, you know, making that swing pattern stronger, essentially. Uh, you know, we, we don't really have too many gimmicks. We just, you know, we, we use the machines and those and we just hit, hit a lot of baseballs. Do you think if you were to take a pie chart of things that you guys do at practice and you saw like, okay, we spend this percent of time hitting, we spend this percent of time working on, you know, uh, PFPs, this percent of time working on rundowns, situational defense, whatever it may be. Do you think that there's anything you would look at and go, man, we spend way too much time doing that. Or you would look at the pie chart and go, man, we need to spend more time on this. You know, honestly, looking back at, some information and kind of reflecting on the past few years, I think that we probably could spend less time on doing first and thirds and, you know, rundowns and maybe even bundies. Like, you know, there's people aren't, I mean, at the high school level, they are a little more, but I mean, there weren't too many people really bunning that often against us last year. And, you know, I, I think that we do a, a pretty good job with it. And, you know, but I always have the fear of, hey, if we don't train it enough, we're going to mess it up. But, you know, that might be something we kind of scale back on and then just spend some more time hitting and more time just, you know, fielding and just fundamentals. You know, if, you, if you can be fundamentally sound and you can go out there pitching-wise and, and not walk people, you got a pretty good dang chance to win. And so just adding some more more time to some individual fundamental stuff would be probably what I would focus on. So you coached football, like you said. Do you think being a multi-sport athlete is everything that makes up to be? And I'll, I'll use this counterpart before you answer. The two, the two athletes that I see all the time on Twitter that we use is, well, they were multi-sports athletes, is Aaron Judge and Patrick Mahomes. And I would argue those are probably the two best athletes in the world anyways. Uh, or LeBron, right? But I'll ask you this: Giannis Antetokounmpo, did he play multiple sports, or did he just play basketball? Luca, do we? I, I don't know if Luca played another sport, but I don't think he did. Shohei Otani, these players from other other countries, I don't know how much they are playing other sports growing up. And I look at the Dominican Republic. I look at you know, did Tiger Woods play multiple sports? Did Venus Williams play multiple sports, or did they just focus on one? Do you think being a multi-sport athlete is everything that? the world makes it out to be to developing athletes. 
you know, I, I think it's important for several reasons. And, you know, I, I can't speak for, you know, some of the athletes in, in different countries because, you know, they sometimes their way out is that sport. And here, you know, we have so many opportunities. We can go so many different places that sometimes, and this is one of the reasons why I think it's important is, you know, kids get burnt out like super fast and, uh, but we, we have so much access to other things. So it's easy for us to get burnt out. Uh, but I also think that when you just play the one sport, you know, year round, and I mean, maybe not, but this is how, how I view it is that there's a lot more, you know, room for injuries because we're doing the same movements over and over and over. And I have a couple kids who just play baseball and I try to tell them to shut it down all the time because year round they'll be doing it and they're always banged up. Something's always wrong with them. And then where my guys who play football or, you know, play something else that they'll have little bumps and bruises and stuff like that. But during the season, they're not as banged up. And I think it's because they've, they've taken some time away from it. And I also think that it, it relights, you know, their love for the game because I was a multi-sport athlete as well. And, you know, by the time football was getting close to the end, I was ready for baseball season. And then when baseball was getting ready to the end, I was ready for football season. So, like, I, I always – I never really fell out of love with either of them. And uh, I think that, you know, there's definitely some pros to it. The one con, you know, I've seen it with one of my players this year, is that he's missed so much time because he's, he's – football is big down here in South Georgia. So he's missed a lot of time in the summer – and then in the fall, going to like some some showcases and some workouts because he's playing football and, and he's a very good player and he's a college level player, but he hasn't got the exposure that he needs because he is, you know, playing football. Really enjoyed having you on, Coach. And I'll wrap up the podcast episode with a question I've been asking to end of almost every episode I've been recording lately. So you used to coach football, so I have this question for you. If you took every NFL starting quarterback in the NFL and handed them a baseball and said, I want you to do a pull down, do you think every NFL quarterback would have the ability to touch 90 miles an hour? I think that if they practiced over time, yes. I think there are some, obviously there's some dudes that played some baseball, Mahomes, Brady, you know, those guys definitely. Um, but I think there's some guys that, Maybe I've never thrown a baseball, and you know it's it's not necessarily the same throw and different mechanics. So I think like I think a lot of them have the arm strength, but do they have the the technique and the fundamentals on how to throw a baseball? That's a different question because I've seen some some guys that how to football practice that can absolutely you know throw the crap out of the ball, and then you hand them a baseball and it looks like you know they're about three years old trying to throw a ball so you know that I think that it's it's a toss-up 